If you're like most of us, you own entirely too many clothes. And yet, the most common feeling we have when the time comes to dress up is I've got nothing to wear. We're constantly deal shopping and clothes buying, and yet we still feel as if we do not have the clothes we need to feel happy, stylish, attractive, and empowered. How did we get here? Turns out, the problem isn't our messy closets. It's our messy relationship to clothes, style, the fashion industry, and ourselves. Join host Aaron Flynn as we talk to the experts in the industry, history, and psychology of clothing and try to uncover how we got to this place with too many clothes and nothing to wear. Brought to you by Cloudwell. If there's one thing I hope we've made clear by now, it's that clothes matter. And if clothes matter, then the history of clothes matters too. We can't just go back to 1984, when Forever 21 was founded, and call it a day. To truly understand the economic and social drivers of this fast fashion world we now live in, we need to go back much, much further. But anyone who knows me knows that history, not exactly my strongest subject. In fact, one of our guests today really knows that. Because in addition to being a PhD in history, specifically 20th century U.S. women's history. She's also my sister. Dr. Michelle Marino is the deputy director of the Indiana Historical Bureau. She received her bachelor's from Hanover College, master's from the University of Louisville, and PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's that sister I mentioned. Joining her is her colleague at the Indiana Historical Bureau, Lindsay Beckley. Lindsay is the host of Talking Hoosier History, an Indiana history podcast that seeks to challenge what it means to be a Hoosier. Together, they're going to help us trace this era of too many clothes and nothing to wear back to its social, economic, and political roots. Welcome, Michelle and Lindsay. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're, we're real happy you decided to have us on. It's hard to talk about fashion today without talking about the past. So can we start off by having you guys give us some historical context for why we shop the way we shop? When did this whole culture of buying or having to buy to be stylish begin? So um, this is Lindsay, by the way. Uh, for your first question there about when we kind of saw the rise of the consumerist behavior, um, that really kind of started around the Industrial Revolution. Before that time, fabric and fashion and buying new clothes would have been uh, inaccessible to a lot of people. So um, after the Industrial Revolution kind of made a, a lot of things, not just clothes, but definitely clothes included, uh, a lot more accessible to a lot more of the population, that's when you started to see a lot more people buying a lot more things and um, owning a lot more than just the couple dresses that they might have in the past. Of course, it didn't happen overnight, but it definitely started with the Industrial Revolution. And Lindsay, for those of us who may not know <laughs> when the Industrial Revolution um, 
exactly took place. Can you give us some years for that? So that's going to be uh, like the late 1700s to the early 1800s. It's when, you know, you, you started to see the rise of factories that everything was coming out of being uh, handmade and started being made on a, on a larger scale. Got it. And it feels like women are the main consumers. Is that, was it, is it specific to, or like, was this intentional? Do you have any context for that? Erin, this is why history is important. You need to Google (laughs) Industrial Revolution before we do a podcast. Um, But if I could jump in and piggyback a little bit on what Lindsay was saying. So the the shift in um, mass production and consumerism, it does start with the Industrial Revolution, but you have a second period of that that in particular affects how women shop and fashion as well. And that really occurs after the Civil War and then really at the shift which occurs and ends in 1865. Erin, in case you needed that date too. Um, But really, at the turn um, from the late 19th century into the early 20th century, a couple things happen simultaneously. One, we shift towards mass production with clothes um, and mass-produced products. So factories are producing more cheaply made goods. They're available to more people than they had been in the past. You also have the rise of national advertising and the rise of department stores. So people are shopping differently and the way they're receiving information about goods is not on a local level. There's, you know, Sears and Roebuck catalogs and things like that that are being sent out nationally. Um, So again, you have this new period of mass production and mass consumption that's different than what people had seen in the past. Got it. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Like, it seems like media and culture have played a huge societal role in how we dress. And you kind of mentioning advertising and catalogs and all of that kind of happening around that same period of time. Um, One, do, do you think that's true? Like that media and culture have played a huge role in this? I, I definitely think it has played a, or played a big um, a big part in this. And even before there were, you know, catalogs or national advertisements, people looked to the higher classes and they were influenced by the courtesans or the uh, the king and people that were kind of in the public eye more than a lot of, uh, you know, I guess commoners would have been. Yeah. And so it kind of shifted from that to, to more advertisement driven in the post-Civil War era. Yeah, I mean, we want to be clear that, like, fashion has always been a thing. Like, style has always right. been a thing. That's not a 20th century invention. But, like, where they're getting those ideas and how those ideas are coming to them shifts in the modern era. So why does it seem to impact women, you think, more than men? Well, it impacts both, but in different ways. So yeah. the, the point that we want to make here, and Lindsay can jump in on this as well, but... Women have been defined and restricted by beauty and in fashion in ways that men haven't been. And so what I mean by that is, you know, men have always been told to wear certain things or have certain cuts of clothes mm-hmm. or, you know, certain clothes represent certain classes. That That's not new either. But men have always been identified by different aspects of their lives, too. So whether they're the breadwinner, what type of job they have, um, if they're good at sports or, you know, how intelligent they are. Like men can be defined by different roles, if you will. But for much of history, like women have not had access to those avenues or have not been defined by that. It's about how pretty you are, how you present yourself in right. public. Um, yeah. Beauty is is definitely tied to that sort of self self worth, if you will. So, it's it's 
again, not that men haven't been impacted by fashion, but that they haven't been defined by it. Yeah. And it definitely seems like, and I don't even know if it's fashion, it's like the consumer side of it. The um, Like, I think there's some stat out there that says most of the consu- or household products, it's like 80% of that is bought by women or 80% of the buying is done by women. Um, yeah. and, and even when you go back to, uh, you know, before the uh, women's empowerment movement, uh, women were still running the household a lot of the times. Yeah. Men would maybe be the breadwinner, but the woman would be uh, oftentimes going out and buying the household goods or dictating to somebody else what household goods needed to be bought. So women have always kind of had that consumerism or that Purchasing power. Yeah, purchasing power. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. So let's talk about some historical facts that I personally need some context for, (laughs) and maybe this will help other people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But we saw like women wearing white be a huge thing in the political season, specifically with Hillary Clinton. And then I think even more recently, um, when the women in the House all wore white to the State of the Union. And I obviously know it has something to do with the suffrage movement, but I, I have very actual very little context for this. So can you help me personally in why do women wear white? We would love nothing more to give you some history tidbits <laughs> related to this. What's interesting about that is the suffrage movement itself has really been going on since the mid 19th century. In America, it started before the Civil War. 1848 is, is seen as sort of the, the uh, beginning point here um, with the Seneca Falls um, uh, convention. Uh, I'm going to just pause you real quick and act like I know what that is. So go on. <laughs> right. Uh, Seneca Falls is actually the first gathering in America where women come together and, and um, you know, say we want to be equal. We're being okay. discriminated against. Let's start a movement. Although if we're getting nitpicky, which we are because I'm a historian, action doesn't really come until two years later at the Worcester Convention, but that's for another podcast. I'm sorry, I'm being totally historian right now. Part two, or I'll probably hear it at dinner sometime. That's exactly what's going to happen. So the British women's suffrage movement also starts earlier than even the American one does. Actually, um, uh, some of later the more famous American suffragists had been at Britain at a meeting, and so they bring back some of these ideas here. I say all that to then actually get to answer the question that you asked me to to begin with was uh, there's a long history of women fighting for suffrage, but the colors that we now associate with that don't come about until really 1908, 1910 ish. And they come again from Great Britain. So several members of the sort of more radical sect of the women's suffrage movement in Great Great Britain um, choose colors uh, that they want to sort of represent the suffrage movement. Um, And the first is white, which was to represent purity. The second was purple uh, to represent dignity and loyalty. And then they also had green, which was supposed to be a symbol of hope. Now, what's interesting then is when these are co-opted here in the United States, they drop the color green. And then again, sort of 19-teens-ish, they pick up um, the color of gold or yellow, which you often see on the suffragist um, sashes that are worn later. And the yellow or gold color comes from uh, sunflowers, which was the state flower of Kansas. And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, which were some of the most famous and earliest suffragists, um, had started the push again after the Civil War, like 1867, for women to get the right to vote. Um, And they started that in Kansas. And so that's where they adopt the state flower. 
or, or the color there. So even pushing past the symbolism of the color white and its uh, symbolism of purity and femininity, um, if you just go and look at some old suffrage marches, uh, look at some photographs of them, you can see that it really makes those women stand out of the crowd. Everybody around them is wearing black. Uh, or in the State of the Union address, if you look at those pictures, it's a room yeah. full of men wearing black suits and then all these women in white. And it's very stark and it's, it really goes a long way to setting themselves apart from the crowd and saying, we have a message and you should listen to us. Yeah, I wonder if that was part of their thought process. It's like everyone's wearing black suits at the time if, if it was just purity, but also like, hey, we are going to stand out. Well, what's interesting, too, about that is while the colors are important and they do represent something that's meaningful as well, that they actually are engaging in fashion branding. And so what I mean by that is a lot of the early suffragists, um, you know, had a, a bad rap, got stereotyped as being masculine or these women that were out to get things that weren't theirs and they were rough and tough and like they're not true women, essentially. Right. Yeah. And so what the, they do sort of at the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s is they're saying we're going to actively counter those stereotypes and we are going to engage in, if not high fashion, like the most fashionable types of outfits that are out there today. And we're going to force you to see that we are your daughters, we are your wives, we are highly respectable feminine women, that we are not different, that we are not, um, you know, you can't make us out to be something that we're not. And so um, they intentionally were like reflecting that through their dress, not only the colors, but again, the cut, the style um, to to fit in with what was popular at the time. Yeah, I love that. That's exciting. I think the thing, because the thing throughout even doing all these podcast episodes, it's like oftentimes fashion, I think it's thought of as frivolous. But like even in hearing that, it's we often are using our clothes to like say something. And I love that they like even incorporate that in this huge movement. So it's really interesting. Um, OK, let's consider Downtown Abbey or even like Little Women era. How did we go from corsets and dresses to pants? Like why did why did women used to wear dresses all the time? And then how did that kind of change to where now? I mean, I wear a dress for a special occasion. So I am a huge Downton Abbey fan, and if there are other Downton Abbey fans out there, you might remember in season three, uh, Sybil wears a a style of pants called harem pants. It's kind of like a split skirt that are kind of, uh, it poofs out and then tightens on the the, um, ankle again. I would say they're like baggy kind of, right? Yeah, kind of like MC Hammer pants. Yes, Yes. hammer (laughs) time. So uh, obviously that wasn't socially acceptable. Even then she was kind of ridiculed for it or everybody was kind of appalled that she was wearing them. But it was kind of, that is the start. It goes back a little bit further to the 1800s to the dress reform movement. And they would wear what were called bloomers then. And they would wear little skirts over them. But that was more for sporting and for some activities that it wasn't really feasible to wear a skirt for. 
Yeah, if I could jump in here for a second too. Um, it, yeah, it has to do also with the rise of the bicycle as women were um, starting to ride bikes uh, in the 1890s, which was like so radical. Like you can't, like it's funny, we think about riding a bike today, no big deal. Like it was like shocking and horrifying for society that women had all this independence on their bicycles. Even for men, there was a guy who was fired, a professor was fired from Purdue University in like the late 1800s for riding a bicycle through campus. What? Oh man, I tell you what, what a We've time to be come a long alive. way, we have yeah. scooters now. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, but so they had to have more practical clothing for that and so bloomers um, were sort of popularized mm-hmm. as women, it's also about the same time that women start playing basketball and other sports. So this is like a more practical thing for them to wear. Um, but yeah, like Lindsay was saying, like it is not popular in society outside of like what you're doing in gym class or if you're riding a bike or something like that. Yeah. And even when we think back, I think a lot of people think of World War II as being the real starting point of when women started wearing pants. And it's true. Yeah you know, factories aren't a good place to be wearing full-length skirts. So they would wear pants for that kind of work. But typically in social settings, they would still be wearing skirts. It wasn't until the 60s or 70s that women really started wearing pants uh, all the time, not just for certain activities. And that's when it really started becoming socially acceptable is around the 60s. Aaron of little family history as well. Uh, our great-grandmother... Um, worked in a butterfly bomb factory in Indiana during World War II. And they asked the women to start wearing pants, like for safety reasons. And -hmm. like, she was so shocked and appalled by that. She refused. Like, she was like, I'm not (laughs) doing that. Like I'm wearing a dress. You can't make me. And she never did end up wearing pants. So that's hilarious. Fun fact. I didn't know that. Okay. Which grandma is this? (laughs) Uh, Grandma May. May Mama's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, now the entire world and or who listens to this podcast knows I call my grandma <laughs> mamma. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. That's how um, we do it. How much, because I keep hearing this kind of maybe common through line, how much of what we wear has maybe been dicti- dictated by men versus women? Probably not as much as the modern world would have you think. Um A lot of times women had one place in their life where they could exercise complete control and that was in their fashion. And so they used that and they chose what to wear. And even something like the high heel that I think a lot of people would think or kind of posit that men make women wear high heels because we look good in them, which we do. But but it was actually men who started wearing high heels and it was kind of a – a power play for women to start wearing them. Men wore okay, them wait. to be taller and dominant. And let's just pause on that for a second. So you're saying men, w- one men wore high oh, heels yes. from. Uh, so heels. There are images of heels from back like ancient Egyptian times, and until the 15th century. So, well, I guess the 16th century, yeah. 1500s. Uh, they were exclusively worn by men, and that shift, um, women started wearing them and it was kind of a, uh, androgynous type of, uh, women taking men's fashion to kind of appeal to a a different audience, I guess. Um, and, and to quite frankly, pull a power move and kind of tower over everybody in a room. That's so fascinating. And when you think about it to even today, like 
being tall is a masculine trait or is desirable for men. I mean, also women more and more, but it's definitely something that's more masculine. And that that was started. I mean, it, that's always been the case. And they oftentimes would have achieved that by wearing heels. That's so interesting. I like I kind of want to say good job, women. And then I also want to be like, but high heels are kind of painful. So why do we do that to ourselves? Well, that's there's a whole nother issue there. And really, the, the essence of this is that it's complicated. It's just it's not black and white. Like you can't say this is totally oppressive or that women had no say or power in it and that this is dictated by men. But on the other hand, like if you look at the history of women's fashion, often it is more complicated or problematic or uncomfortable or you know, dear God, why can't we have practical pockets in our pants? You know, like stuff like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, yeah, we can dissect and, you know, pull out problems within it. But like the other, the, the point that I would want to make here too that, that Lindsay was hitting on as well is that it is complicated. And oftentimes fashion industry and really beauty culture, the larger beauty culture, um, it was a space where women could exert some agency. Like, yes, they're in essence, promoting these sort of patriarchal ideas that women should be beautiful and that you need these products or clothes or whatever it is to achieve this. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, like particularly if you look at the history of makeup, um, that was a way where women could start businesses. Women could go door to door as sales people and promote their own products. Um, They could exert some control and influence over that and in fact, you know, have successful businesses uh, from that as well. Which that is kind of kind of still true in the fashion industry. And this kind of leads us to the industry in and, in and of itself. With the rise of fast fashion and the unfair labor treatments in third world countries, there's been a lot of talk currently around our own regulations here in the States. Do you guys have any you know context for how that began specifically, um, you know, I, I Elizabeth Klein, who we had on, um, she's an author, she had kind of brought up the shirtwaist fire in New York City. So can you give us some historical context for our own regulations here and how that's kind of transformed the fashion industry? Absolutely. And you're probably gonna have to cut me off at some point because I could talk about this for an hour. Um, But particularly with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, I cannot underestimate the importance of that event, not only in fashion history and American history and in labor and regulation, like it's such a pivotal moment. Um, And sometimes it it does get lumped in with like labor or fashion, but it goes way beyond that. It's a story of labor rights. It's a story of immigration, about class, politics, industry, women's activism, and ultimately compassion too. So there's so, so many layers to that. And when did it start? Or when was that? Right. So the Shirtwaist Factory fire took place on March 25th, 1911, but that is not actually the start of that story. So what's fascinating about this, well, I really want to tell you, first off, what Shirtwaist is, because we throw the term around and people might not actually know. Um, But in the early 20th century, the Shirtwaist was becoming incredibly popular in what it really was was a high-necked blouse that was made of cotton or linen that was worn with a skirt that was, I guess, kind of billowy. Lindsay, you can probably explain it better. So if you can think of a Gibson girl uh, with all of her hair piled on top with a big white kind of flowy blouse on tucked into a narrow skirt with a uh, trumpeted bottom, 
That's yes. kind of the iconic Gibson girl. That's a shirtwaist that she's wearing. Got it. Also, that was the perfect visual. <laughs> and that had recently shifted at the turn of the century from women wearing like high-necked uh, dresses that were tighter and sort of restricted their movement. So this is also kind of like allowing them more fluidity and movement and things like this. So anyways, this shirtwaist becomes very popular. Um, and there are over 300 factories in New York City that people are producing shirtwaist in, if that explains like how popular this clothing item was. But um, this is an industry where women are making up the majority of the workers, and they were fed up with being mistreated, with bad working conditions. There were all sorts of issues that were going on in particular in New York City, but also across the rest of the country. So in 1909 and 1910, there is a huge uprising of shirtwaist factory workers in New York City, and they go on strike. And it is the biggest labor strike led by women um, up up to that time. And so basically, they, they all get together and saying we're overworked. They're working like six days a week, I mean, 10 to 12 hours a day. They're underpaid. They are not earning living wages. There's unsafe conditions. I mean, these machines are close together. There's no room to get up and move around. It's unclean air. Um, there's a lot of fire hazards in these, you know, smaller factory face, uh, spaces. They're not spaces that we would envision of like the modern factory that's huge and clean yeah. and all sorts of stuff. So there's all sorts of like problems that we wouldn't even, we can't even imagine like working in those conditions today. Yep. Um, but so the women wanted to unionize and they start pushing for better conditions. And so they go on a strike in New York City and I'm talking like 15 to 20,000 women. This is not oh, like wow. a small group of women doing this. And the women who worked at the Triangle a Waste Company were among that group. And the strike also spreads across the nation. So workers go on strike in Philadelphia. They go on strike in Chicago, too. Um, and like I had mentioned a minute ago, in New York City, it's women that are working at over 300 different locations. So, um, and I think early 1910, most of the factories settle and allow their workers to unionize. But the Triangle Waste Company is like one of three that hold out and do wow. not allow their workers to unionize. Now, they do give them a handful of concessions, but like nothing on the level that the women at the other factories earned. So I think they gave them like a slight wage increase and shortened their hours like a little, but like nothing mm. like what the other ones did. And people like lambasted that, them in particular, the Triangle Company at the time for, for holding out and not giving in. So... <laughs> Fast forward, like one year later, nothing changes. The conditions are still terrible there. Um, this tragedy occurs. So a fire breaks out. And so for a little context of like how this was set up and, and what it looked like is the Triangle um, Waste Company had the top three floors of the Ash Building in New York City. Um, and they have the eighth, ninth, and 10th floor. Um, the fire breaks out on the fifth, or I'm sorry, the eighth floor and they don't know exactly how it started. They suspect someone flicked a cigarette into a pile of like uh, scraps, cloth scraps, and it okay. just spreads. Yeah. Um, but what happens is, so most of the women, there's like 180 women or something on the eighth floor, many of them get out. They see the fire, they're able to escape. They call up to the 10th floor 
The 10th floor is when the uh, the admin, the owners of that factory were up mm-hmm. there in other offices. And then there was like a smaller production line up there. So they get the word. They climb on the roof and make it to safety. Nobody tells the workers on the ninth floor. So they're just there working away, not knowing that fire is like encapsulated the floors both below and then above them as well. Yeah. So they're stuck until the fire is already in that, in that floor. Um, and so... <laughs> What happens is there's two exits. One of the doors is locked intentionally. The other one is open, but that's where the fire comes in. So there's no exits for the women to leave. There's an elevator going down, but only so many people can fit on the elevator at a time. And so women start jumping down the elevator shaft, trying to hold onto the cables and slide down. Um, A few women make it out a window onto a fire escape, which then collapses, and a handful make it out on the roof. The others are just stuck. So they try to go to the windows and it's either be burnt to death or jump. And so many of them jump to their deaths nine stories below. So a couple other things that happened that, I mean, this is obviously super traumatic and tragic, but a couple other things happen at the same time. One, it's almost closing time. So people are coming out of all the buildings around them because they're leaving and hear about the fire and are watching this happen in real time. The other thing is this is really close to Washington Square Park. And so people hear that this is going on and walk over. So people are also witnessing this, the tragedy, the women dying and jumping um, to their deaths. A couple other things to note um, that this not only highlights like safety regulations in factories, but problems with how the fire department operated um, in general. So the fire department gets there very quickly. Um, Their ladders only go to the sixth floor. Their hoses only reach the seventh. So there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. And then the other thing is they have nets to try to catch the women when they fall. Um, But they're coming down with such force, they're just breaking through the the nets. So That's horrific. It really is horrific. Um, So when it's said and done, 146 women and men die. Um, A large portion of that number of 146 are young immigrant women mostly uh, Jewish or Italian. Um, And so it's like, it is the worst tragedy in New York City, um, fire safety tragedy until 9-11. That's crazy. It is crazy. Um, So the silver lining, if there is any, because this is a horrific story through and through, is that real reform does come out of this. Mainly they push for safer factories and like industrial regulations. Like, you can't lock workers into a space, for instance, um, or block fire escapes, or maybe don't make your fire escapes out of wood. That's a bad idea. Um, They also, like, mandate fire drills, like, limits on having, like, scrap piles laying around or combustible materials laying around. And they set standards for, like, ventilation, sanitation, like, all these things. So... What happens is it's also women leading the charge and pushing for this reform, but like 60 pieces of legislation are passed uh, in the state of New York that sort of set the standard for other states to follow in terms of like labor regulation. That's what I was going to ask. Was this kind of the beginning of that? Yes. I mean, it's not to say that people hadn't been striking and and agitating for other reform, but in terms of things, um, you know, happening in that moment and because of this tragedy and in terms of like regulation that we would recognize today like yes that's so crazy it's crazy for multiple reasons but um one to think that 
this factory fire happen within fashion or like, you know, they're making mm-hmm. uh, clothing garments. Mm-hmm. Um, women are involved. Like you said, it has all these different elements, but also that that changed our laws. And yet from, you know, kind of what's happening right now with fast fashion is this very, like there was a similar fire incident um, in Bangladesh, I think it was 2015. Mm-hmm. And now kind of, uh, this is all kind of being brought up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so f- crazy because um, the similarities are so true. And yet we would think, like, to think of this happening today um, is kind of m- mind-boggling from a U.S. standpoint. It has to go with also the way we produce our clothes is different. Like, those factories are not in the United States anymore. They're right. overseas. And so we don't have the regulate. We cannot control all the regulations that we normally would here if, if those factories were still in the United States. Which kind of goes to the point that you were just saying, which is, like, people, when this was happening, um, one, the striking like seems like everyone um, kind of in the U.S. was maybe aware that this was going on. And then also like when the fire broke out itself, people were watching this event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that, when that happens today, we don't see it like at all, even though it's our clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that's oh, it's so interesting. OK, so knowing more about the history of fashion and women and culture, what do you think then is the biggest lie we believe as consumers? To me, the biggest lie that we believe is that fashion history is trivial, that it doesn't mean anything. I find often that when you tell somebody, especially as a woman, that you're interested in fashion history, you get brushed aside and people think that you like frilly little dresses and that you like, um, you know, you just like pretty things. But it has such a bigger impact than that. Um, And really, for me, my my two biggest interests are fashion history and food history. And those two things are one of the very few things that humans all around the world can identify with. Whether you think that you're fashionable or not, you're still partaking in the fashion industry. You're still having opinions on fashion. So for all of time, all over the world, everybody's wearing clothes and eating food and that's pretty powerful. No matter where somebody's from, I can connect with them on that. Yeah. I would say we all get up and hopefully put clothes on. <laughs> and then <laughs> to survive, hope. we literally need to eat. And if I can jump in on that, too, I mean, and then jumping back to the issue of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire, is that this impacts how we live today. Like the, the fire in particular, right? Like it changes workplace regulations. Um, it changed what we demanded from our government in terms of protection. Um, and the, the other piece that I didn't mention earlier, which is super important, that, that this w- goes even beyond that. This fire changes the Democratic Party into one that stands for workers, for immigrants, and one that fights for urban reform. So, like, it changes politics. It changes laws. Um, it, it changes labor activism. Like, so many things, like, they're interconnected. It's not just fashion. It's not just clothes. Like, these have a much bigger impact on society as we understand it, but then consumers too. How do you think knowing a little bit about the history of fashion and even like women and culture can help change the world for the better? Um, So I, like I said earlier, have always been interested in fashion history. And through that, I've actually come to 
decide that I'm not buying any new clothes anymore. I am buying either secondhand or vintage clothes and altering them myself. And I've learned a lot of the techniques that I use from his historical uh, manuals and things like that. So through learning about fashion history, I've learned how to change my wardrobe today to be more sustainable and to be more, you know, economically friendly and it's cheaper for me and it's better for the environment. And that all started with an interest in fashion history. I would say we could have a whole side podcast episode on that specifically. Um, And, and I feel like that's only coming back more and more like the mending and the, again, everyone's looking to sustainability now. Um, I'm getting into my last three questions. What moment, and these are kind of, uh, before I jump into this, these are kind of rapid fire. So what moment in your own journey or learning about women in history would you consider life-altering? For me, it was simply learning what feminine feminism was. It's not a dirty word. It's about equality and equity. Um, and also that the idea of like bottom-up history and that everyday people are important historical actors and it's not just great men or even great women, that everyday people are critical to understanding history. What's the one piece of wisdom in this whole process that you've gained that you wish you could pass on? For me, it's uh, that there is a different way to do things. How we're doing things now isn't how we did things 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And we can look to the past for a blueprint on how to change things today and how to model our industries today. And then finish this sentence, I believe. History is relevant. So getting back to what Lindsay was saying earlier, if you can connect the past to the present, you understand it. You understand the world in which you reside now, and these things are all interconnected. History is not just names, dates, and facts to remember. That's boring. It's not helpful. You need to understand why it's important and how it affects your life today. That was great. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And Michelle, I'm sure that you will lecture me some more (laughs) um, at the dinner table sometime. So I really appreciate you guys taking uh, time out of your day to be here. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. Obviously, we like talking about these things and promoting history. And if by lecture, you mean enlighten you on the ways of the world and why it's important, then yes, I look forward to that at dinner. And on an older sister note, I feel like we should end the podcast with that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Lindsay and Michelle for taking me and all of us really back to school. For more, you can check out the Talking Hoosier History podcast. Even if you're not a Hoosier, I think you're really going to love it. If this is the first episode you're listening to, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the earlier episodes. Episode one with Elizabeth Klein has another excellent conversation on the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Next episode, we're going to hear from someone who at one point truly had too many clothes and how she found her identity in the midst of chaos. I ended Even Stevens, I remember them being like, you can have all of your clothes. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. These tapes start to play in your mind about not being good enough or the failures you have. Shedding your old closet, shedding your old identity, that is something so powerful.